1: New season, out on Spotify soon.
0: December 8th, 1949. 17,000 screaming fans crammed inside Madison Square Garden to watch the CCNY Beavers take on the SMU Mustangs. Going into the game, CCNY was favored to win by 13. CCNY sophomores Ed Warner and Floyd
1: Lane were sinking baskets left and right, but star center Eddie Roman, one of the
0: team's leading scorers, was having an off night. At around the five minute mark, Warner passed the ball to a wide open Roman. He was positioned to make an easy two points, but instead of looking at the basket, Roman focused his attention on the scoreboard, CCNY 41, SMU 37. Roman turned back to the basket and fired, but the shot hit the rim and bounced into SMU's hands.
1: Warner came up and patted Roman on the back, telling him to shake it off. There was still plenty of time to extend the lead. Roman nodded and feigned a smile. Because Roman wasn't just having an off night. He was missing shots on purpose. He needed to keep the score within 13 points. That was the only way he'd get his
0: payout. Welcome to Sports Criminals, a ParCast original. Every week, we dive into the dark side of sports history and look at athletes who not only broke the law, but broke the rules and covenants of their sport. We'll also uncover how their actions impacted the history of the sport they played. I'm Tim Johnson.
1: And I'm Carter Roy. You can find episodes of Sports Criminals and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Sports Criminals for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Sports Criminals in the search
0: bar. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. This is our first episode on the CCNY point-shaving scandal of
1: 1951 one of the largest point-shaving scandals to ever rock the sports
0: world. This week, we'll start with CCNY's 1949-1950 season, when the Beavers did the unthinkable and won both the NIT and NCAA tournaments. But behind the scenes, several of the players began entertaining the idea of shaving off points for money. Next week, we'll explore how more members
1: of CCNY's team got into fixing games, and how a student from a completely different school brought the whole scheme crashing down.
0: Dodgers, Giants, Yankees. From April until October, these are the teams that dominated the sports talk around New York City. For roughly seven months, the largest city in the United States debated which baseball team was the best— And during the 1930s and 1940s, Yankee fans were usually the ones celebrating. When October
1: ended, all eyes turned towards basketball. But it wasn't the Knickerbockers who sold out Madison Square Garden. Rather, it was the local college teams who played under the big lights. Long Island University, Manhattan College, NYU, and the rising
0: force to be reckoned with, City College. Overlooking the Hudson River in Harlem, City College of New York was a public institution known for its academics. Considered by many as the Harvard of the Proletariat or the Harvard on the Hudson, CCNY provided academic excellence for working-class people. The bulk of the
1: student body were immigrants or first-generation Americans, particularly of Eastern European Jewish descent. CCNY offered kids an opportunity to advance beyond the struggles of their parents. To achieve the American dream their fathers and mothers
0: desired for their children. But while CCNY's reputation as a noteworthy college for the masses grew, its reputation for athletics was generally uninspiring. The football team was garbage, and the baseball team was pedestrian at best. Something needed to change. The one sport at the school that seemed to find some success
1: was basketball. After a couple of decent seasons, the school decided this was where they would find athletic glory. And to lead them, the college turned to one of the greats,
0: Nat Holman. By 1919, Nathan Nat Holman was considered the greatest to play the game. His nickname was Mr. Basketball. His natural ability to move the ball and score, coupled with his professionalism, revolutionized the image of the basketball star. While
1: still a player himself, 23-year-old Holman agreed to lead CCNY to glory, For the first 20 years, Holman proved he was the right man for the job.
0: CCNY ended each season with a winning record. Holman's game style was more measured and traditional. Compared to today, it was kind of boring in its slowness. He never cared for the high-energy, rapid-tempo style. In his eyes, the fast break
1: diminished the quality of play. Where was the challenge if the defense wasn't allowed to get
0: set before the offense attacked? Unfortunately, by the 1940s, the rest of college basketball begged to differ with this mindset. Schools around the country started to employ a quicker style of play, and the results were back-to-back losing seasons from 1942 to 1944 for the Beavers. At the end of 1944,
1: word spread around the Big Apple that perhaps Mr. Basketball had lost his touch. Holman knew if he wanted to keep his job that he would need help. He got it from
0: former player-turned-assistant coach Bobby Sand. Bobby Sand was a player's coach. On and off the court, the players loved and respected him more than anyone else. He was smart, innovative, and saw that the tides were changing for the sport. If CCNY wanted to win championships, it needed to alter its strategy. It wasn't easy, but by the mid-1940s, he had convinced his boss that it was time to speed things up but this meant finding
1: players who could adapt. Luckily for Holman and CCNY, Sand had an eye for talent. His favorite places to scout were the Brooklyn and Bronx YMCAs. He knew that the best talent was on the street level, where kids were already
0: quick and aggressive. The shakeup worked almost instantly. CCNY was back to winning 17 or 18 games a season and made it to the NCAA Final Four in 1947. Everyone knew that an NIT or NCAA championship was near. It wasn't a question of if, but when.
1: By 1949, CCNY had the foundation for a potential championship run. Their starting lineup consisted of four breakout sophomores and one senior. These four sophomores were considered some of the greatest players Sand had recruited. Hype started to build that the Beavers were a force to be reckoned with.
0: At the beginning of the season, 19-year-old Edward Eddie Roman was the best of the sophomores. At 6'6 and 225 pounds, the Bronx Center was a beast on the court. His senior year of high school, he set a school record, scoring 336 points in one season. Not only was he a magnet for the hoop, but Roman was smart. Rarely did he make mistakes with the ball.
1: Roman's best friend was shooting guard Floyd Lane. Also from the Bronx, 20-year-old Lane was known for his style and grace on the court. Though he would never rack up as many points as the others, his disruptiveness as a defender made him the unsung hero
0: of CCNY. At point guard, there was Alvin Fats Roth. Despite the nickname, Roth was anything but. Six foot four and muscular, Roth had an eye for how the plays would be set up and knew where everyone was going to be. Author Matthew Goodman noted in his book, The City Game, that Roth had an unusual habit of spinning the basketball in his hands as he surveyed the court to set up a play, utterly poised, like a gunman twirling his pistol before a fight. The
1: most promising of the bunch was forward Edward Warner. Born and raised in Harlem, Warner was a natural. He could make baskets, snatch rebounds, and get the ball to his teammates quicker than the rest. One former student described him as the
0: 1940s Michael Jordan. Rounding out the team was senior Erwin Dambrott. As a left-handed shooter, he was able to confuse defenders every time he shot. Dambrott and Roman went to the same high school, and Roman looked up to the upperclassmen as an older brother.
1: With three Jewish players, Roman Roth Dambrott, and two black players, Warner and Lane, the Beavers were poised to be one of the splashier teams in the league. Whether by choice or happenstance, the 1949-1950 squad was the epitome of the working class values CCNY had pushed. Now it was time to put up or shut up. All eyes were on them as they faced off against Queens College on November 26, 1949.
0: The Beavers did not disappoint. With Coach Holman fully embracing Bobby Sands' up-tempo approach, the starting five hit the court and essentially put on a jazz ballet recital. The ball quickly and gracefully passed from one hand to the other, eventually making it into the basket. The key to the whole thing was that everyone, didn't matter if they scored or not, was involved in the play. But the true
1: star that night was Eddie Roman. Whether it was rebounds or steals, Roman always seemed to have possession. He was always able to get it to an open man down court.
0: In the end, CCNY put on a clinic. The final score was CCNY 91, Queens 45. But the question on
1: everyone's mind was whether or not the team could hold it together under the bigger lights. The season opener was one of the few games to be played at CCNY's gym and not at Madison Square Garden. And of the starting five, only Dambrot knew what it was like to play at MSG. Could the four young men born and raised on the mean streets of the Bronx, Brooklyn, and Harlem play this well under the bigger lights?
0: Or would they fold under the pressure of playing at the mecca of college basketball?
1: On December 3, 1949, CCNY faced off against Lafayette, and any lingering doubts about the Beavers vanished. The final score was 76-44, CCNY. These five boys were good, very good and with a cadre of reserves to sub in from time to time, Holman and Sand were able
0: to keep their stars rested and healthy. The period of rebuilding was done. If ever a season was going to end with a championship, this was it. Nothing was going to get in their way. The
1: third game of the season was scheduled for December 8th against Southern Methodist University. Going into the game, the Beavers were a 13-point favorite. And at the rate they were playing, 13 points was a conservative prediction.
0: Prior to the SMU matchup, star Eddie Roman was approached by point guard Fats Roth to discuss something important. Roman was confused but curious, especially since Roth said that it involved one of the senior reserves, Norm Mogger. Mogger was not
1: only the leading substitute, but also one of the oldest on the team. If he needed to talk
0: about something, it must be important. Roth took Roman to Mauger. When they sat down, Mauger leaned in quietly and made Roman a pitch. Would he be interested in making $1,000 during the game? All Roman had to do was make sure that CCNY came in under the spread. Roman couldn't believe what he just heard. He was being asked to fix a game. Coming up, Eddie Roman contemplates fixing basketball games. Now, back to the story. In December of 1949, the CCNY
1: basketball team started its season on a major high. After two games, the Beavers had outscored their opponents by 78 points. After 30 long years under coach Nat Holman, it looked as if the stage was set for CCNY to make a
0: historic run. But on December 8th, just before their matchup against the SMU Mustangs, some of the players were conspiring to do the unthinkable, fix the game. Sophomore Eddie Roman stared
1: at Fats Roth in shock. Why was he asking him to cheat, to not play to the best of their ability? And why would Norm Mauger, a senior, put a younger player at
0: risk like this? As Roman's mind raced with questions, Roth and Mauger continued their pitch, Mauger had been approached by a bookie named Eli Kay. He offered $1,000 to make sure that CCNY didn't cover the spread. CCNY could still win, it just had to be by less than the 13-point spread. But Mauger couldn't do it alone. CCNY was too good,
1: and he'd only be able to do so much to sway the outcome. So he approached Fats Roth, Erwin Dambrot, and one of the other subs to help. In total, the boys were offered $4,500, $1,000 for Mogger, Roth, Dambrot and Roman,
0: and $500 to one of the reserves. Roman let Mogger's offer sink in. While it made sense that Mogger could get Roth to agree, because he was also a Brooklyn native, getting the Bronx Dambrod was a shock. Though they were all on the same team, Borough solidarity trumped all else. Roman had always looked up to Dambrod as something of an older brother, Would he really be willing to put his legacy on the line for $1,000?
1: But $1,000 was a lot of money. Today, that's worth a little over $10,000. Growing up the son of Jewish immigrants, Roman knew firsthand the financial hardships his family faced. His father was constantly unemployed. An extra $1,000 would definitely be a help.
0: Magr went hard on his pitch. Much of it was an attack on Coach Holman, Holman and the other coaches ate expensive steaks for dinner, while they ate cheap sandwiches. How come Holman could afford fine pressed suits while they had holes in their socks? They were the ones doing the work, not Holman. Plus, everyone else was making money off of them. Why shouldn't they get a piece of the action? Roman knew
1: Mauger wasn't wrong about that last part. Plenty of strangers were collecting massive payouts on the hard work that he and his teammates did each week.
0: Since the 1930s, sports gambling had seen a boom, especially since the invention of the point spread. Allegedly, Charles K. McNeil, a Chicago bookmaker, invented the concept as a way to make sports events more exciting and therefore more enticing to gamblers. At the time, most sporting events weren't evenly matched.
1: More often than not, it was clear that one team was going to dominate the other. Naturally, in the world of gambling, this wasn't very lucrative. So the point spread was invented to
0: spice things up. Within a decade, Madison Square Garden was full of people who had gambled on the spread. Fans would cheer and jeer, not if their favorite team was winning, but if they were covering the spread or not. Of course, with this new
1: popular invention in the sports world came corruption. Bookies all across New York began paying players to fix the games in the bookies' favor. Authorities had
0: started cracking down on point shaving, investigating, and raiding bookmakers. But the legal repercussions were the least of Roman's worries. As he weighed his options, he realized he wasn't being asked to lose the game entirely. Was there really
1: any harm if they beat SMU and made some money on the side? And if Erwin Dambrot was in on it, then it must be okay, right? He decided he was
0: in. That night against SMU, Eddie Roman struggled to keep his composure. In fear that all 17,000 fans at Madison Square Garden were in the know, Roman missed shot after shot, and not just on purpose. He failed to make easy rebounds, and his passes were all over the place. Gone was the mental smartness that he was known for. In
1: the first quarter, Erwin Dambrot failed to keep his end of the deal and sank baskets left and right. By the time halftime came, he had 12 points to his name. Though it isn't confirmed, we can assume that Norm Mauger gave Dambrot an earful.
0: In the second half, he only scored two points. But while the five on the take did their best to keep the game score low, two powerhouse players, Ed Warner and Floyd Lane, balled out. Seeing that their teammates were struggling, the two took control of the game in the second half. Roman watched in horror, Not because they were
1: ruining the scheme, but because they were giving it their all, and he wasn't.
0: When the buzzer went off, the final score was CCNY 67, SMU 53. The Beavers had won by 14 points, one point above the spread.
1: As he sat in the locker room, Roman held his head down in shame. According to Matthew Goodman, Roman was 4 for 14, and two of those were easy tap ins under the basket. He had played the worst game of his life.
0: Later that night, Norm Mager quietly met with bookie Eli Kay and asked for the $4,500 the team was owed. Kay was aghast. The CCNY 14 point win meant that Kay lost quite a bit of cash himself. He was
1: outraged that this punk had the balls to ask for money when he and his teammates failed to live up to the deal.
0: In fact, he told Mogger that CCNY owed him for their failure. Mogger heard the threatening tone loud and clear, and he made sure Roman, Dambrot, Roth, and Cohen got the message too. All of them knew that the next time Kay wanted a game fixed, they better fix it or else. It would be weeks before Kay reached back out to
1: Mauger, and in that time, the Beavers were on a successful streak. By Christmas, they were 6-1, and and there was no talk, to Roman's relief, of fixing any games.
0: But that all changed on December 27th. CCNY was set to play one of the West Coast's great teams, UCLA. Despite the Bruins' rising program, CCNY was still a nine-point favorite, and to Eli K, it was the perfect time for the boys to repay what they owed. Roman wasn't able to put up much of a fight. He knew that dealing with bookies was
1: dangerous, and owing bookies could be fatal. So he played ball. And
0: again, it wasn't
1: like he had to lose. He just had to make sure they won by less than nine
0: points. Ultimately, CCNY lost 60-53. Roman ended the night with 22 points, but they were a sloppy 22. Easy shots were still missed and passes were overthrown, and making sure he didn't repeat his SMU first-half offensive dominance, Erwin Dambrot went one for four the entire game. The loss meant that Eli Kay hit a
1: jackpot and that the boys were no longer indebted to him. This should have made the boys happy. However, a loss was still a loss. And they knew there was a possibility that it could come back to haunt them during an attempt to enter the NIT and NCAA tournaments later that
0: season. Closing out 1949, many in New York began to suspect that the hype surrounding the sophomores at CCNY was premature. But the Beavers begged to differ. On January 3rd, the first
1: game of the new decade, CCNY beat their heated rival nationally ranked St. John's 54-52, Compared to lopsided games of the past, this one was a battle of wills that came down to the final seconds. When the Beavers came out on top, a sense of rejuvenation filled the team,
0: Eddie Roman especially. The victory over St. John's was the beginning of a seven-game win streak for the Beavers, with the majority of these victories coming by double digits. In those seven games, Eddie Roman was able to shed whatever fears he had about point shaving and dominate on the court. So much so that he surpassed Erwin Dambrot's 276 single-season scoring record by Week 16 of the season.
1: The starting five of Roman, Warner, Lane, Roth, and Dambrot were a force to be reckoned with. But the path to glory wasn't set in stone. By the end of February, a few key losses, including that one to UCLA, came back to haunt them. Instead of safely securing a spot in the upcoming National Invitation Tournament, they were on the hunt for one of the final seeds. With two games left before the NIT, CCNY knew they would need to dominate if they wanted that 12th and final tournament spot. Beating upcoming opponent Manhattan College Jaspers would be the most important game of the regular season.
0: On March 2nd, 1950, 17,000 fans crammed together in Madison Square Garden, ready for a crosstown matchup for the ages. Neither team disappointed. At the beginning of the game, both teams traded points, each refusing to let the other pull ahead. That is until
1: CCNY scored nine baskets in a row, taking the lead and holding on to it at
0: halftime. But Manhattan wasn't ready to throw in the towel. Led by star seniors Hank Poppy and Jack Burns, the Jaspers finally found their groove. With about five minutes left to play, the score was now tied. 50 all, it was anyone's game. A few
1: minutes later, the Beavers took the lead thanks to a Fats Roth breakaway and Ed Warner scoring three off a basket and a foul. Manhattan quickly answered back, cutting the lead back down to two. With 10 seconds left,
0: the score was 57-55 CCNY. But Manhattan had the ball. As the clock ticked toward zero, the Jaspers saw the chance to tie the game and took the shot. The garden went silent as the ball inched closer and closer to the hoop, a perfect shot that was about to send the game into overtime. But the ball bounced out of the hoop
1: and into Hank Poppy's hands. He scrambled to make one more attempt, but it
0: was too late. The CCNY Beavers just barely etched out the victory and kept their hopes alive for the final NIT spot. Though it would be another few days until they officially learned their fate, the young men couldn't stop themselves from celebrating into the night. Four days later, on March
1: 6th, the announcement finally came. The final three teams to be invited to the National Invitation Tournament were Arizona, Niagara, and City College of New York. Their first game would be in five days against the defending champions,
0: University of San Francisco. While the starting five focused their attention on practice, senior player Norm Mauger received a call from an old friend. It was bookmaker Eli Kay. He was interested in fixing
1: the upcoming tournament. And since it was the NIT, he was willing to sweeten the pot. $2,000 for each of them.
0: Coming up, Roman and the others decide if a major payday is worth hurting their chances at making history. Now back to the story.
1: In March 1950, the CCNY Beavers secured one of the final spots in the prestigious National Invitation Tournament. As coach Nat Holman prepared his starting five to face off against defending champions University of San Francisco, reserve player
0: Norm Mauger was meeting with an old bookmaker friend. Eli Kay was desperate to get in on the action. Despite the slight hiccup earlier in the season, he knew that the CCNY Beavers could shave points if they wanted to. With the NIT around the corner, he was in a prime position to make quite a payday. So he approached his contact, Norm Mogger, and made an offer, $2,000 for each of the men if they came in under the spread. Mauger was in shock. A thousand bucks for a 20-year-old 1950 was a lot,
1: but double? That was hard to turn down. He promised Kay that he could convince his
0: teammates to agree to the fix. But his teammates declined. Eddie Roman and Erwin Dambrot, in particular, were against fixing tournament games. The road to get to the NIT was long and hard. It wasn't fair to them or their teammates to not give it their all, even if the money was good. Mauger
1: looked to Fats Roth, the most supportive of the sophomores, but even Roth knew that it wasn't going to happen. Turning down $2,000 was a tough pill to swallow, but Mauger accepted the decision. He called Kay back and gave him the bad news.
0: If the City boys were nervous going up against San Francisco in the first round, the final score didn't show it. Led by Roman and Warner, the Beavers dominated, beating the defending NIT champs 65 to 46.
1: With the first game in their rearview mirror, all eyes were now on the quarterfinals. CCNY was set to face their toughest opponent of the entire
0: season, the University of Kentucky. The Kentucky Wildcats were the gold standard when it came to college basketball during the 1940s. Led by the Baron of the Bluegrass, coach Adolph Rupp, The Wildcats were one of the most successful teams across the U.S.
1: Rupp himself was a strong personality and strict disciplinarian. If the team lost a game, more often than not, he forced them to practice that very night. As author Matthew Goodman noted, Rupp believed and instilled in his boys that a basketball was a tool, not a toy, that the game
0: wasn't a sport, but a business. His authoritarian coaching style yielded results that had never been seen before. In his first 20 years leading the program, Rupp's Wildcats won two NCAA championships, one NIT championship, and six straight SEC championships. Going into the 1950
1: National Invitation Tournament, Kentucky was the odds-on favorite. CCNY knew that if they wanted even the slightest chance of beating them, it would take everything they
0: had. But the matchup wasn't going to be just a classic fight of two great teams. No, this was also two cultures going to war, the North and the South reigniting the Civil War. The Wildcats consisted entirely
1: of white Anglo-Saxon Protestants. Diversity was not only discouraged, but actively fought against. During the summer of 1949, the school featured seven cross burnings on campus. If ever there was a school representing the
0: antebellum South, it was Kentucky. The Beavers' team, meanwhile, was the quintessential melting pot. Though mostly made up of and coached by Jewish men, the fact that two of its starting players, Warner and Lane, were black was a shock to the rest of the country, especially to Kentucky. In the days leading up
1: to the matchup, a nasty rumor went around that Coach Rupp referred to the Beavers using racial slurs. There's little evidence that directly supports this claim, however, that such a rumor went around perfectly showed to everyone watching that this wasn't just a basketball game. It was, as one sports reporter put it, a culture war.
0: On March 14th, 1950, 18,000 people packed into Madison Square Garden to watch the battle over the soul of America. The Beavers lined up and prepared for the traditional pregame handshake. There was nothing flashy nor special prepared just a normal moment of sportsmanlike conduct but when ed warner went to shake the hands of the kentucky players three of them looked down at his hand and walked away the crowd gasped
1: did that really just happen could the wildcats be so classless to refuse
0: to shake a black man's hand but ed warner expected as much coach holman warned both warner and lane that something like this would happen and if it did, to use that as fuel. Lane later recalled turning to Warner and saying, we're going to go out there and bust their ass. That
1: night, the Beavers were quick and disruptive. The Wildcats were used to playing a very coordinated and formal ball game. CCNY took advantage of that by increasing its already fast tempo. And to completely disorient the Wildcats' defense,
0: the Beavers randomly changed positions mid-play. Getting the ball out of your hand and to your teammate as quickly as possible was the name of the game. One would have thought that the Beavers were a pinball machine with how quickly they bounced the ball back and forth to one another.
1: Kentucky couldn't keep up, not for one second. Fans were shocked at how slow these supposed all-stars looked compared to CCNY. Worse yet, as CCNY drove up the score with their deadly accurate shots, Kentucky
0: seemed unable to respond. Eddie Roman and Erwin Dambrod were playing in typical high-caliber fashion. But the star of the night, the kid who everyone remembered, was Ed Warner. Warner had taken everything he learned on the streets of Harlem and brought it to the garden. Around the back passes, weaving in and out of players, and remarkably accurate hook shots.
1: When the game was finally brought to a merciful end, the final score was CCNY 89, Kentucky 50, It would go down as the worst loss in Coach Rupp's 40-year career as the Wildcats' head coach.
0: Ed Warner scored a team-high 26 points. Dambrot came in second with 20, and Roman rounded out the top three with 17. The three had solidified their place in CCNY history. As Madison Square Garden chanted the incomprehensible CCNY school song
1: of Aligaru, the boys went into the locker room on cloud nine. They, a bunch of outsiders from the worst parts of New York, took down the elites,
0: and they did it in style. The CCNY-Kentucky match was the equivalent of the United States beating the USSR during the 1980 Winter Olympics, or the 2004 Boston Red Sox beating the New York Yankees in the ALCS. Everything else that followed was a blur. The Beavers' cruised past Duquesne University in the semifinals and made it to the championship game. On March 18, 1950, the Beavers faced off against the Bradley Braves in the NIT championship game. Perhaps it was nerves being in the title game for the first time, but the Beavers started things off a little sluggish. Though they were able to maintain the ballet-like style of play, they struggled to actually score points. And going into the half, Bradley was up 30 to 27. But in the second half, The Beavers
1: turned things around. In the final two minutes, Ed Warner once again put the team on his back,
0: allowing his team to drive up the score, and when the clock hit zero... City College of New York were, for the first time, NIT champions. The final score was 69-61. After nearly 30
1: years of fits and starts, Coach Nat Holman had delivered a championship. CCNY had waited a long time to raise the big trophy, In March 1950, that mission
0: was accomplished. As the trophy passed from hand to hand, the tournament's MVP was announced. To the shock and joy of everyone inside the garden, it was Ed Warner. He made history that night, becoming the first sophomore and the first black player to win the honor. To the Harlem kids watching inside and at home, Warner became every young player's idol.
1: Less than a week after winning the NIT, the CCNY carried that energy into the NCAA tournament. Uh, During the 1940s and 1950s, the NIT was actually the more prestigious of the two
0: March tournaments. But that didn't mean
1: teams slacked off for the NCAA.
0: In the quarterfinals, CCNY narrowly defeated Ohio State 56-55. And in the semifinals, they beat out North Carolina State 78-73, setting up an NIT championship rematch against Bradley in the finals. CCNY was on the verge of doing the unthinkable,
1: winning both the NIT and the NCAA in the same year. It had never
0: been done before. The darlings of the Big Apple had the eyes of America on them. As if the boys needed any more motivation, Coach Holman brought in a guest to deliver a pregame motivational speech. Everyone's jaws dropped when Brooklyn Dodger Jackie Robinson entered the locker room. Warner and Lane, in particular, were starstruck. It had been nearly three years since Robinson
1: had broken the baseball color barrier, but the NBA was still segregated. Warner and Lane had aspirations of being the Robinson for basketball. Now, here was their hero telling them that he was proud of the hard work
0: they did. The Beavers knew it was their time. One championship down, one to go. The rematch with Bradley
1: was just as intense as it had been a few weeks earlier. Both teams were physical and rough. Senior Norm Mogger slammed his head into a Bradley player and medical staff was forced
0: to come out onto the court. Both teams refused to let up on the gas. Whenever CCNY took a comfortable lead, Bradley quickly answered and cut that lead down to within a point or two. Everyone inside the garden knew that it was gonna come down to the final seconds, again.
1: As the clock inched closer to zero, CCNY was up by three. With 10 seconds left, Bradley had the ball and charged down the court. But the player lost control of his own speed and the ball
0: hit his knee and went flying out of bounds. Floyd Lane took the inbound pass and threw it towards Ed Warner. Warner caught the ball and held when the buzzer went off. CCNY 71, Bradley 68.
1: For the first time in college basketball history, one team had won both the NIT and the NCAA tournaments in a single season. Madison
0: Square Garden erupted into chaos. There were always high hopes that this was the Beavers' year. For 30 seasons, Coach Nat Holman had struggled to push his squad over that hump. With the help of Bobby Sands' sharp eye for talent, he had finally done it. But
1: the win was more than just a win. Reporter Stanley Isaacs perfectly encapsulated what the 1949-1950 CCNY team meant to everyone considered an other. He wrote, This was more than a basketball victory. It was a triumph for the school, for the city. A bunch of kids from the alleys and gutters of New York, Jewish and black kids mostly, had licked the best the rest of the country had to offer. City College, a school so long mocked for no other reason than that a kid could get a free education there, had achieved something no other
0: school ever had. He wasn't wrong. But with the season now over, naturally there was talk of next season. Could the Beavers repeat? Was this the start of a dynasty? CCNY was only losing a few players.
1: Erwin Dambrot was drafted in the first round by the New York Knickerbockers, and Norm Mauger
0: went to the Baltimore Bullets in the fifth. But the core four, Eddie Roman, Ed Warner, Floyd Lane, and Fats Roth would be returning as juniors. The possibility of going back-to-back wasn't as crazy as everyone thought. All it took was hard work and dedication, something these boys were already used to. 1949-1950 was just the beginning. The only thing standing in their way was surviving summer break. About three hours north of New York
1: City lay the Catskill Mountains. During the summer, the area becomes a popular vacation destination, especially for those of Jewish and Italian descent. College boys from all across the metropolitan New York area flock to the Catskills to work summer jobs.
0: Eddie Roman and Fats Roth both worked as waiters for the Hotel Brickman, And down the street, Ed Warner was a busboy at Klein's Hillside Hotel. Every Friday, the
1: boys would put down their waiter trays or dish buckets and play basketball. All the boys, either from CCNY or Long Island University or Manhattan, played in mini-tournaments each
0: week, and during those games, vacationers gambled. Catskills gambling wasn't a major racket. Rather, mostly innocent wagers on the games. One popular bet was to see who could get closest to the final score. But that didn't stop some of New York's seedier patrons from making their way to the so-called Borscht Belt to gamble on, or fix, these exhibition games. One of those gambling vacationers
1: was a 45-year-old jewel manufacturer, Salvatore Salazzo. Salazzo loved betting on those summer games, but he loved fixing them even more.
0: As he watched the boys play in the summer of 1950, His mind began racing about expanding his racket to beyond the Catskills. He knew for the right price, he could get a whole network of college ball players to shave points for him. In no time at all, he set his sights on the recent NIT and NCAA champs, a team with high point spreads and a talent to control the game in his favor. City College of New York. Thanks again for listening to Sports Criminals. We'll be back next week with part two of the CCNY point shaving scandal. We'll explore Eddie Roman and his teammates' return to point shaving during the 1950-1951 season and how the conspiracy proved to be bigger than anyone expected. For more information on the
1: CCNY scandal, uh, among the many resources we used, we found The City Game by Matthew Goodman to be extremely
0: helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Sports Criminals and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all your favorite ParCast originals, like Sports Criminals, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker.
1: To stream Sports Criminals
0: on Spotify, just open the app and type Sports Criminals in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. Sports Criminals was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. It's executive produced by Max Cutler. Sound design by Michael Langsner, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, Freddie Beckley, and Joel Stein. This episode of Sports Criminals was written by Joe Guerra, with writing assistance by Abigail Cannon and stars Tim Johnson and Carter Roy.